Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. We left off with Joseph Shoemaker, known as Jack Around Town, being arraigned and denied bail for the murder of Betty Cantrell. At first, Jack denied murdering Betty, but later confessed that he had been drinking and finished a bottle of whiskey the night that Betty went missing and was ultimately killed. Later, he said that he went over to the dine-out cafe and that there was another male patron in the restaurant with Betty that night. When the man left, he said that Betty sat at a table on the north side of the cafe. Jack would enter the cafe and approach Betty, hit her in the mouth, and knocked her out with her body falling backward. He said that he hit her with his left hand, and in his right hand, he held a sugar container, but did not hit her with it. He also stated that he hit her in the stomach with the end of a butcher knife. He then drug her outside to her car and shoved her in it. At that point, he showed an injury to his knuckle to the police who were investigating him and taking his confession. He said it actually happened at the time of her brutal attack. He said that he also went back inside, grabbed her purse, the butcher knife, and a radio. He took the money from the cash register and turned out the lights. In his next move of events, he drove to South Kentucky. He took a sock off, put a rock inside it got Betty out of the car and started swinging the sock with the rock inside, hitting her repeatedly in effort to subdue her. After he beat her, he took her to the creek bank. He got in the water and pushed Betty under, drowned her, and would weigh her down by putting rocks on top of her. After he left Betty in the creek, Shoemaker then drove to Neosha River, stopped, got out, threw her purse and knife in the river. He then stomped on her radio and eyeglasses and tossed those items in too. When he got back into the car, he drove it down to 3rd Street and parked it somewhere and then walked home. Shoemaker was examined by a polygrapher and asked if he killed Betty, to which he replied no. When he was asked about his confession and if it was the truth, he also replied no. On February 12, 1970, there was a preliminary hearing, but it would be a long wait for a trial. One of the concerns was if Shoemaker was competent enough to stand trial. Shoemaker was transported to the state hospital shortly after the hearing. In April of 1970, a three-judge panel took under advisement the motions in the case made by the defense attorney, Dave Conderman, this was concerning the evidence in the case against Shoemaker. Conderman was asking for some of the evidence to be thrown out and that the case be dismissed. In October of 1970, a judge ordered that Shoemaker was not mentally fit to stand trial. The judge ordered that he remain in the state hospital until he was able to assist with his defense. Shoemaker's legal team made a motion to dismiss the, the case against him on the argument that the confession was obtained without due process. They stated that Shoemaker could not have voluntarily given 
a right or obtained his rights to legal counsel as he was too drunk at the time to understand what his rights actually were. And then he was interrogated while intoxicated and not in his right mind. Finally, the trial would take place on July 22nd, 1971. The jury was composed of 10 men and two women from the Iola area. The prosecutor, Mitchell Bussey, began his opening statement saying that Jack Shoemaker had confessed to killing Betty Cantrell. And in his confession, he knew things that only a killer would know. There were three things that he claimed that Jack Shoemaker knew and the public did not. Number one was that there was change left in the register. Number two, there were two cups of coffee on the table in the cafe and one had lipstick on it. And number three, there were rocks found on top of Betty's body when she was discovered. The first witness to call to testify was Eddie Bolas, who was in charge of the jail at the time that Shoemaker was brought in on October 14, 1969, for the drunken disorderly charge. He stated that Shoemaker was making a fuss, insisting on speaking to the sheriff. When the jailer told Shoemaker that the sheriff was busy, he said that Shoemaker blurted out, I killed a woman. When he asked Shoemaker what he was talking about, Shoemaker then said, I killed that Cantrell woman. Other witnesses called to the stand on the first day were David Cantrell, Betty's husband. David testified that at the time his wife left for work and that she left with her glasses, purse, and a small radio. None of these items were found in the cafe or in her car. None of these items were even found after Shoemaker made the confession. Philip Ekstrom was the next witness to testify. He was the son of the cafe owner and worked part-time with Betty. He took the stand and he testified that he arrived around 6 a.m. as usual. The day of the incident, he walked to the cafe, noticed the lights were out, so he returned home to get his keys, figuring that Betty had been sick and closed up early. When he returned to the cafe, he found that the door was unlocked, so he went inside and he noted that there was a table with empty cups on it, where Betty usually drank her coffee when she was not busy. He then called the police. Ekstrom was not able to testify that day that there was blood in the cafe, including a handprint on the counter, because the police told Ekstrom that morning that the restaurant could be cleaned up and reopened. The handprint was never documented or preserved. The coffee cups found on the table were washed and returned to service and never taken by the police. The next to give testimony was Jimmy Maloney, who discovered Betty Cantrell's body while riding his motorcycle across the Kentucky Street Bridge. He testified that he went to George Rival's house, and then George Rival called the police for Jimmy. The first officer on scene was Richard Dury. After Jimmy Maloney and George Rival had made their testimony would be when the defense began to present their case, which would happen on July 26, 1971. In their statements, they began to attack the confession made by their client, Jack Shoemaker, pointing out that the prosecution claimed only the murderer could have known certain details, when actually just about everyone in town knew that. The defense stated that Shoemaker was at home during the time and had an alibi. Also, that in the confessions, there was a mention of a knife being taken from the diner, yet no one, even including the cafe's owners, would report a missing knife. They also pointed out that three women in Iowa had been killed, and all three lived within 125 yards of each other. Also, the evidence in the cafe was never processed. 
With this being said, the defense really thought they had a strong case. The first witness that the defense would call would be Etta Crowd. Etta was Shoemaker's mother, and she testified that her son went to bed around 10 p.m. and did not move until 6.45 in the morning, and that her small dog would have slept with him. And if he had left the back porch, the dog would have made a fuss. The next to testify was Grace Newland. Grace lived at the house for eight years, and she also said that if Shoemaker had left, she would have known and heard him as she was a light sleeper, and opening the door makes a racket. James Peeler also stated even if Shoemaker was drunk, he was always the type to walk away. The owner of the dine-out cafe was to called to testify next. She told the jury that she arrived to the cafe that morning after hearing from her son. There was a complete bloody handprint on the counter area between the dining room and the front room. She said it was a good handprint, but the investigator never processed the prints. She also said that all of Mrs. Cantrell's items were missing from the cafe. One thing that was not missing was a knife to her knowledge. There were several men who would come to testify next that they all knew that there were rocks on top of Betty's body. And even one of those men had given a ride to Mr. Shoemaker during the time. This man helped with the search of Betty. And in fact, one of these other men testified. Everyone in town knew because they heard them at the local cafe. One of those men would include Bob Johnson. He not only testified that he knew about the rocks, but he also gave the information that investigators told him about the knife. The next day, the jury would hear testimony from Dr. Nair, a psychiatrist that had examined Shoemaker. He stated that Shoemaker was probably lying when he confessed. He stated that Shoemaker didn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. He also testified that Shoemaker was suicidal for months before his confession, and that in confessing to a capital crime, he would achieve what he was unable to do. Bob Lane testified that he was the man who drove by the cafe at 4.45 a.m. in the morning, and that although the lights were on and there was a car parked up front, something did not seem right, so he stopped by the police station to tell them. One little bit of testimony was from Dr. Mayers, whom occasionally Shoemaker worked for. He, too, was a believer that Shoemaker's confession was false and that Shoemaker was a drunk and a drug addict who would have been in a daze while confessing under that, that high-intense situation and under the influence. One of the interesting tidbits is that Shoemaker did not even have a driver's license or could drive a vehicle, especially when he was on the job at the farm. On July 29th, after deliberating for two days, a total of six hours and 45 minutes, the jury found Shoemaker not guilty. After the trial, Shoemaker left Iola, traveled around for a while, and then died in St. Louis, Missouri on July, in July of 1977. He is buried in the same cemetery in Iola, Kansas, where both Betty Cantrell and Sally Hutton are also buried. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Vicki Curry, who was a neighbor of Joseph Shoemaker. We lived next door to his mother. 
And when he was in town, he stayed at his mother's home. Etacrol can wait north first. And, and Etacrol was 224. Because there, you know, that, that right of way that the, the city of Iola recently purchased for a walkway for the kids for the yeah. school? It's, that, was the walk, that was what separated their two homes. It's a very nice little old lady. She had a, a little dog, and we would go over there and visit with her, and she would make cookies, and she was a very nice, very nice. She had a roommate. Her name was Grace Newland. She was very nice, too. And when Jack would come to visit his mother, Grace would come over to our house and spend all afternoon. Whenever he was home, he was abusive, and he was drunk. It would be like for maybe a week at a time. He would just show up. He would sleep on the back porch. There were just two bedrooms, and there was the one in the front that, if I remember right, didn't even have a doorway or anything. That's the one that Grace stayed in. And then Mrs. Kroll stayed in the back one. Okay. And then Jack was on the back porch, so she, that was the only place she would have had. And he really was a mama's boy. I mean, he really was. The sun rose and set in him. She really did try to give him everything. Mm-hmm. That... She, I mean, she gave him everything she had, but when she didn't have any more money, that's when he would burn her, when he, she didn't have any more money to give him. And um, I just, I mean, I just assumed that he just play, played upon the defenseless. Mm-hmm. When he was in town, we weren't allowed to go over there. Yes, she would have burn marks all down her arms from cigarettes. I don't think he had any friends in town. I really don't. I think he probably just stumbled home to have some place to, to stay when he got into a tough spot. And I don't know that he ever had a job. Never heard anything about him ever having a job. I can't imagine him ever being aggressive to like- A stranger. A stranger in the restaurant over something, yeah. Even it, drunk. Even drunk, yeah. He was a stumbling down drunk though. I mean, if he was drunk, he wouldn't have had it, had the strength to, to do anything like that. Someone would have been able to get away. He was always a stumbling down. I remember hearing he was arrested. We discussed that. I mean, you know, that was a topic of discussion at our home. But I, I don't remember. I mean, nobody at our house thought he did it. We discussed it at our house, and we all felt like it was above and beyond what he was capable of doing. When he was drunk, he was abusive. But he was a scrawny little thing, and just, I, I can't imagine him ever having enough strength to, to harm anyone. Oh, but I do know that when he died, they found him in a ditch. He just passed out in a ditch and, or a gutter, and they found him dead. So I would guess that he drank until he passed. So now that we've given you all this information about the trial and the dates and how everything went down, we're going to kind of come in and break down Shoemaker's confession. So I think where we start with Shoemaker's confession is the part in the very beginning where Shoemaker talks about there was another man in the cafe with Betty at the time. And then when that man left, then Shoemaker went into the cafe, explains the two coffee cakes cups is that there is a man in the cafe having coffee with Betty. And I do believe he was probably lurking, especially if he's drunk kind of on the corner because it's on a corner and looking in, he probably did observe that. Okay, then my problem with that is no other man came forward to say that they were in the cafe that evening having coffee with Betty. So to me, when I look at two coffee cups, 
I think that one coffee cup was Betty's and one coffee cup was Betty's killer. Okay. And here's my thing too, because Shoemaker is a local. Betty is having coffee with another male patron. He obviously didn't recognize them. Because even in his confession, which we're breaking down, he does not say it was Joe Smith or Billy Bob or whoever, right? So it's obviously not somebody that he recognizes. Okay, so then that would say that whoever, if you believe the confession, whoever Betty was having coffee with in the diner that night was possibly not local. And that may be why that person never came forward. I guess so. I mean, but it's really hard to think that there'd be somebody not local there well i mean the cafe apparently did cater to the possibility of truck drivers why is that though because i'm sorry i've been there a couple times gretchen like in driving through town that's not somewhere we're stopping to fill up or have something to eat or any of that no the cafe is is more in the middle of town and not like on the outskirts where the highway is. So you would have to know that the cafe is there, that it's open 24 hours a day and kind of seek it out. It it would be a place that I think you're looking for. And even though it says it, it caters to those truck divers, that might be people working at the cement plants overnight. Again, people who would have read the paper and heard that the waitress was missing from the dine-out cafe, who would possibly come forward and say, hey, I was just having coffee with the waitress there. I actually didn't even think about the cement plants, actually. So you're right. I mean, that's that's completely possible because you're going to have people in and out there. Probably had shift workers. So you have some shift workers coming in, but I think shift workers would possibly come forward and say, I had coffee at four in the morning with Betty Cantrell. Unless they thought they were going to be on the hook for something. There is a possibility that the two coffee cups didn't nece- weren't necessarily on the table like that. Even though maybe she picked one up and she was going to grab her cup, sat the other ones down as somebody came in the door. So they're sitting down together, but they wouldn't necessarily be sitting at the table together. So somebody would have would have said, I had coffee at yeah. 4 a.m. Yeah. Or I was there right before that. Okay, what about the knife? Okay, well, when you can go testify in court, especially during those times, and say, we weren't missing a knife, they probably weren't. It's strange that the knife comes in here because other people in town seem to testify that police told them that there was a knife missing. At some point in time... At least police officers were under the impression that there was a knife missing. Yeah, but I don't even know why, because I didn't even have Betty's body yet. You know, I mean, it wasn't like she was stabbed or something. And obviously, there are some problems here with the police investigation in the cafe. I mean, we've we've said Come that. Be- then the other point here, the money in the in the register. So it comes over this whole thing that he said he took the cash out of the register but left the coin. Their way of saying. Only he could know that the coins were left. What robber takes the coins out of the register? I don't know that he's standing there getting a coffee cup to fill up the coins out of the register. You have to go into his description a little bit of the fight. Okay, so he talks about he hits her in the nose, kind of incapacitates her at that I point. That's not his stomach. He does hit her in the stomach with a knife, uh-huh. hits her in the face oh, with, with his, his fist. fist. Yeah. yeah. 
and he's saying that he drug her so it's basically saying that she's incapacitated at that point which doesn't explain people in town hearing the screams well unless there was like a minor fight beforehand i mean like it's so weird though because like in a like a moment like that five minutes seems like forever say it was a five minute struggle and the screams and all that's happening i can completely think that happened okay may have been incapacitated for a period of time and then woke back up i actually don't think she was knocked out like that though i really don't think so because if you want to weigh a ton you can make yourself weigh a ton think about it even with my kids sometimes i'm like what in the world why do you weigh a ton right now and it's because you're literally fighting that okay so somebody fighting it would be difficult absolutely and he is not a big man and he's a drunk he's drunk Okay. So Betty's killed on the 30th in September, and Shoemaker is arrested on the 14th. His confession takes place sometime after the 14th. I think the 15th or the 16th of October. He's showing an injury on his hands to them that is still there two weeks later? I mean, I guess it just depends on the extent of the injury, because if it was a scratch, no. If it's something like almost a broken hand yeah you're probably showing that okay that's a good point then the next part of this confession is that he takes her down creek holds her down in elm creek and drowns her then he gets back in her car and he drives out to the neosha river bridge which is roughly a mile from where he drowned her and then he drives back passing the place where he drowned her goes probably around the corner and drops off the car. This is where I can no longer be on the confession boat. Because he's driving around town in her car. Drunk. All of the next all the next steps make no sense. Like why would you drive all the way up to the Neosha Bridge, stomp on her stuff, film in the bridge, bring the car back? Like none of that makes sense to me. Like why wouldn't you just leave the car up to bridge? Because then they wouldn't be looking for her there. You're going to take it back to the crime scene? That makes no sense to me. Okay. And so it falls apart for you there. It does. Because I have a lot of problems with this part. Because to it me, makes no sense. To me, it seems like the confession is like ticking off the boxes for we have to have some sort of reason that we couldn't find her stuff whether or not he did it or not but he's drunk enough that he's like well yeah um where did i put that oh let's see i drove all over town but it's weird because you would think a mile is nothing but a mile in that town is a lot that's okay. going out of your way to do something and then to give people a general idea of this he drives out to the neosha river bridge drops off her stuff passes his house driving out drives past his house driving back in to an area where her body will later be discovered, drops off the car, and then walks from the car near where her body will be discovered to then his house. I mean, they probably wouldn't have thought nothing about him walking around, but... No, they probably wouldn't have. Just the driving of the car and all of that stuff makes no sense. Shoemaker being arrested over the phone call thing 
That, to me, I'm not worried about that at all. I think that all makes sense. The Sanders woman, she owns a beauty shop. He comes up to her. He asks to use her phone. That kind of concerns her because he's drunk. She calls. He gets arrested for drunk and disorderly. I even think maybe he did say, I killed that woman, in order to try to figure out how to get out of that jail cell. Yeah, maybe but, he was I mean, panicking. But, you know, like, leading up to that, they were saying he was suicidal i mean that's almost like suicide by cop without like he can't get a hold of his demons so lock me up that's kind of how i feel obviously he does not fail the polygraph because according to the polygraph examiner when he told them that he that when they asked him if he killed betty he said no when he asked him if everything in the they said in the confession was true he said no and during the polygraph exam he's being truthful to that but there are good reasons that polygraphs are not allowed in court. Yeah, so. but if he was also drunk, you mean, like, in that stupor, believe it. Okay, so if he's drinking, he's also probably able to pass a polygraph. Test. I mean, I would think so, because if you're drunk, and always drunk, right, and you believe something, I mean, like, how, I don't know how your body would be able to react differently. So the polygraph probably has no weight here whatsoever. I don't think so. But then the other thing that comes in here is the people testifying or the guy testifying that Shoemaker couldn't have done it because he couldn't have driven the car. So I actually don't think Shoemaker would have driven the car at that time. but And it doesn't come out at trial. But Shoemaker was arrested in California for stealing cars and spent some time in prison for stealing cars. And how many moons ago was that? Um, before this, it would have been probably 20, 20 years before this. Yeah. So it, it was a while before the, but that doesn't make the, that doesn't mean he doesn't have the ability to drive a car. Sure. But I mean, if you haven't driven in 20 years, you're definitely not driving all around town drunk successfully. Okay. And then Etta testifies that he couldn't have gotten up and out of bed without her hearing because of the dog on the back porch. Okay. How do you feel about that? Etta's his mom. And she is, this is her only son. We don't know her. She's passed away. You know, we do have have the interview uh, with Vicky where she talks about knowing Etta. And I think Etta would do anything to save her son. I definitely agree with that. I'm not... Shoemaker was a town drunk. I think he had been leaving the house nights before. He, he didn't always stay there. That is the one thing we do know, that he did not always live there. Yeah, but the thing about dogs is they're creatures of habit. If they're used to him coming in and out. Like, you can come in my house with my dogs being as loud as they are, and they still don't make a noise sometimes when you come in. So you can throw out what Edda says is his alibi, but it's harder to throw out what Grace says. It is, because I don't you think know... she'd lie for him. I don't think she would lie. That is the one thing. You know, you have Etta who comes forward and says, no way could he have come out. But then you have Grace who comes forward and says, he could not have left. Yeah, but further questions for me to ask there was, was the dog in the bathroom? I mean, because if I wanted to go undetected with my dog, I might pick him up and put him in a room with somebody else right. and leave. Well, that is kind of the curious thing. But they're saying that he was there at 645 in the morning. So she must have been up and around around 6:45 in the morning. She probably was an early riser. And Edda's saying she's there he's there at 6:45 in the morning. Um it could go either way with that one. 
And the biggest thing here is the rocks on the body. So you have testimony from people who had overheard cops talking about there were rocks on her body. Police investigators with such a large search probably were questioning why they didn't find her body earlier. And so the likely reason that they're throwing around for that is that she must have been weighted down with rocks. And what do we know? We know know that it takes three days, roughly, for a person who has been drowned in water like that for their body to surface because that's how long it takes for the gases to bring their body to the surface. That a person who drowns sinks, doesn't float. And that would have been the time frame that they were searching That would have been the time frame, yes. And that is scientific. But it may not have been as much of a common knowledge back then. I don't think so. Well, and I think there were a lot of people who were questioning with such a large search, even when we first took a look at this case. We questioned, with such a large search, how didn't you find her body? You're searching right there. But I think for me, when they were doing that large search, my whole question was, you're running boats up and down there. You're trudging up that water. It made me question, like... When y'all are going up and down, up and down that water, how come it didn't, like, like trudge it up, if that makes sense, you know? When they're searching, I mean, they're also searching with the poles, too. So they are searching for something underneath the water. But it seems like the more and more you read the details about the search, the t- search took place from the Kentucky Street Bridge downstream to the cement plant. And that her body was probably placed upstream of the Kentucky Street Bridge. So the bulk of the search happened downstream of the Kentucky Street Bridge, and she would have been upstream. That may have been part of why they never found her, too. And then when she finally floated to the surface, there she is. And at that point, she hasn't even crossed underneath the Kentucky Street Bridge. That's where the theory seems to start, that her body must have had rocks. But it's very interesting because even though the people in town seem to know this about the rocks, it's the testimony of the mortuary owner and his son that come in and say they picked her body up that day for transportation and there were no rocks. And I think that you have to look at that and say scientific evidence tells us that if there were rocks that were holding her down when her those gases brought her up those rocks would not be present anymore anyway and then you have the mortuary guy who's like there were no rocks yeah and it would have made like bruises on top of her so he would know to look for that you know like if something's sitting on top of you for days at a time post-mortem it would have made marks you know yeah it would have made marks of some sort no and as we never have any testimony from any medical examiner in her case that says that that was their post-mortem we only get the fact that she was drowned and that she had water in her lungs Right, Gretchen. And so one thing we also need to hit on before we close out today is the fact that this jury acquitted. 
I don't think they believed the confession. All I can say is I was surprised that you have a confession. In 1969, you have a full confession and the jury acquitted. I don't think they believed a word of his confession. Well, 19, by the time he goes to trial, it's 1971, right? You haven't heard anything about false confessions. You are definitely talking about an older group of people, even older than what we would consider an older group of people nowadays, but an older group of people who have shown up for the jury who did not believe the confession. I think, honestly, they needed to see more. I mean, they were probably looking for fingerprints because nowadays we look for DNA, but at that time... They were probably looking for something more to actually make that stick. And they were probably offended and like making him more drunk. Approved, they didn't like it. It was bad business, whatever. I think probably all of those. They probably put quite a bit of weight on the psychiatrists and what the psychiatrists were saying. Even nowadays, when you have a confession, you have a lot of people who will say to you, I would not confess of a crime to a crime I did not commit. So therefore, if somebody confessed yeah. drunk, then they did it. Because I wouldn't confess to a crime. I'm not saying that I'm saying that, but that's the general perspective of people when we deal with a confession. Well, sure. And nowadays there's a lot more knowledge about false confessing, which this is classic of it in Shoemaker's case. It is shocking that 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 jury could see past some of that. I mean, it really is. When you break it down bit by bit, and they literally looked at it bit by bit. I guess the one thing that this jury really did for me was gave me a little faith in our justice system because there are a lot of times lately we listen to a lot of true crime and there's a lot of times when we're hearing about this person who got out you know because of this type of evidence and that the jury put more weight on looking at this person as guilty from the moment that they walked in and to me i feel like this jury did their job yeah whether or not you believe that shoemaker did it or not i think you have to say the jury had reasonable doubt and because of that reasonable doubt they acquitted yeah they listened to the instructions given by the, the courts yeah you know for this jury to look through that actually goes to show at that time there was more innocence in people would have to tell you that i also think it was probably very difficult for them to you know, to go back into the town, have people who didn't sit through the trial, didn't listen to it, didn't know what it was like to have that type of weight, be a member of that jury. And just, for some people, I'm sure they believed that they were letting a murderer go. And we can talk a little bit about why the police never went, looked at Shoemaker for Sally's case. I mean, it's pretty easy. One, he had an, an alibi that was not his mother for the time that Sally went missing. Two, he did not have a vehicle that he could have transported Sally in. Whether or not you think he could have drive or not, he did not have access to a vehicle that he could have transported Sally in. So at that point in time, the investigation on that part stops. And um, he definitely would not have been able to buy her burger and fries. He would yeah. take her anywhere that wouldn't have been suspicious. Like, So I guess what we're gonna ask is if anybody has anything to add to that, reach out to us.
Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.